0: Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at the theme of personhood in The Hunger Games and the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Mm -hmm. So, to get us started, we have a quote, and this quote comes from Songbirds and Snakes. And it's when Sejanus goes to the zoo where the tributes are being kept in cages. And he brings food and sandwiches because, of course, he did and wanted to to be able to get the food to the tributes.
1: A self-important little girl marched up beside them and pointed to a sign on the pillar at the edge of the enclosure. It says, please don't feed the animals. They're not animals, though, said Sejanus. They're kids like you and me. They're not like me, little girl protested. They're district. That's why they belong in a cage. Once again, like me, said Sejanus dryly.
0: I don't like your deep voice for him. Once again.
1: Once again, <laughs> like me, Sejanus, the manliest uh, of men.
0: Uh, no, don't ruin him. <laughs> so, Yeah. Very, very clear perspective coming out in a young kid, mm-hmm. right? So it's like clearly all of the propaganda that's put forth by society in general, in the capital, but also I'm sure by this kid's parents, really, yeah, instills these ideas of district people not exactly being people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I love how, for Sejanus, it's very much like, they're like us. And for mm-hmm. her, you know, that is just the exact opposite of the way this girl looks at it, where she says, they're not like me. You know, this idea of being empathetic and feeling like she's at the same level as they are is completely contrary to what she's learned what she's been told.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because Sejanus has been there for eight years or so and, yeah, hasn't... Uh, Hasn't adopted those ideas of, of separation between himself and the districts as being different in any way.
1: And I think another element that comes out of his quote is he's not saying they're people. He's saying they're kids, which I think touches on how The Hunger Games is all about the objectification of children mm-hmm. uh, for these political purposes. And Sejanus is, is really highlighting that even as a young person himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Which
1: I think is very astute.
0: Absolutely. And to have the <laughs> maturity to recognize that he is still a child. Totally. Like when he's talking to a child who's much younger than him. Yeah. And trying to help them understand that they're wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's why I think he's such a great character. And, and why Bell, the Songbird, and Snakes is so interesting. Because we do really see more intensely how district citizens are seen as other by the capital and that is made most visceral through the Hunger Games themselves. Yeah, you know, Sejanus so is showing is challenging those ideas that have just permeated that society.
0: Yeah. But I think it's also interesting because he has the most accurate view in terms of you no know, we're all people and equal in that sense. And then you have someone like the little girl who is comparing them to animals. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone like Snow who is definitely not like we're all equal. But he also recognizes that they are people. Yeah. And and that's a huge part of the angle that he's going for with Lucy Gray to try to give her a chance, right? The audience members have to see her as a person, see her as charming or desirable in some way that they're rooting for her
1: yeah. So, yeah but i think for for snow also all people whether they're capital or not are also just tools to him <laughs> so he, he doesn't see anyone as equal to himself in just importance as well as in status and class and things like that
0: <laughs> no one really has personhood that is have utility exactly yeah yeah Well, gross.
1: Yeah, super gross. Uh, (laughs) Why don't we get into our analysis? What character did you bring?
0: So I wanted to talk about Gale. I think he's a really interesting character when it comes to personhood because he cares so much about the humanity and well-being of everyone who's oppressed and everyone in the districts. But his passion for righting these wrongs, for throwing off that oppression, leads him to be enraged at the capital so much that he then dehumanizes people who live in the capital or anyone who would align themselves with the capital. Yeah. And, like, I get Like, I, I really do. Because I feel that in me on certain issues, even though intellectually I know that's not good or right or is counterproductive, but that impulse to see people who are advocating for such horrible things that dehumanize others, you to just not see their humanity either. I think for Gail, by dehumanizing people like Katniss's prep team and all of those people working in the nut in District 2 that he was, you know, fine to just trap inside to die... You know, he, he is actually participating in, in a similar thinking that makes people think that killing is okay or justified. And that's why the Capitol created the Hunger Games in, mm-hmm. in the first place. And, of course, there's a power discrepancy there. So it's it's not, like, the exact same thing because, you know, there is an oppressor and the oppressed. But, you know, the thinking, I think, in, in both the capitals case and in gill's case is based on this dehumanizing element that is lumping a whole vast group of people into one simplified category that is exploitable or killable expendable yeah. write offable you know any of these things so, yeah, I, I think that he is a really important character to have in the books because his rage does stem from compassion and, and the sense of justice, which is, is great and is wonderful and is necessary. But, you know, in, in being enraged, he only has compassion for some. And he can only see uh, justice in kind of a, a narrow way Mm. and he demonstrates how dangerous it can be to see the personhood in only some people even when it's right for you to be outraged about what other people are doing that is, is destructive and harmful and and awful that's a that's a big part of his character's role in the books is to show that it's not just this right and wrong it's not just easy like okay this is the right side this is the wrong side because he does engage in some things that are incredibly problematic like helping think of those snare types of of ways that plays on human psychology even on their compassion yeah which again when we go back to songbirds and snakes that's what Gaul and Snow are talking about we have to play on people's compassion so that they at least care somewhat about these tributes or else this is going to fail and here Gale is in a time of war and rebellion thinking of ways to play off of people's compassion like in the scenario that killed Prim. So yeah I think he kind of embodies this the complication of being so passionate about justice, even though on, on my first read through Gil wasn't like one of my favorite characters or anything, um, just like, Ugh, just pick Pita, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but on, on further read throughs, I've actually, I have a lot more sympathy for him and where he's at. I get it. I understand the impulse for that reverse dehumanization. So yeah, I thought I thought he was a good character for personhood.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Your, your juxtaposition of his snares with the Hunger Games I think is really, really compelling because in both cases, like you said, they're fine with killing people, which entails its own kind of dehumanization, but the tactics that they use rely on very human emotions and compassion and, and actions. And I think that that is... A really nuanced perspective on personhood, on whether they are seeing their victims as people because they are seeing them as able to be compassionate, but kind of back like Snow's utilitarian aspect of it, of, you know, for both of them in a way, the ends justifies the means. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Gale is a much more compassionate person generally than Snow is, where not everyone is a tool for him, but I think that he certainly does focus a lot on, yeah, these larger causes of justice that he's seeking out beyond the human cost of those actions. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm a pacifist, so... I'm not going to be on that, that gale side of of things, but I can completely conceptualize a logical argument for like, if you really care about the personhoods of the people who are being oppressed, then you will do whatever it takes to bring that system down, right? Like that is a valid argument, whether I morally agree with it or not, you know, that that's an argument that protests and rebellions and, and push back against exploitation and injustice you know these are conversations that often even within the groups that are most passionate about fighting this don't agree on yeah so i think it's it's so good to have gail as a character in these books because that is a real complication that happens for even people who are all on the same side and what they want to happen in the end to overthrow this terrible oppressive system and regime but how you get there is can be very different.
1: Yeah. And and I think that he's also there to help show how effective those methods can be mm-hmm. as opposed to something like Katniss's speech where in District <laughs> Two where she's trying to get everyone together and gets shot.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot true. more
1: risk that comes with those kinds of objectives and, and that, that kind of philosophy. And I think the book, yeah, does explore that in some interesting ways.
0: Totally. Yeah. Well, we should we move into your plot point for me?
1: Sure. I want to talk about Avoxes. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: I think Avoxes are a interesting metaphor for this type of theme because the book does a good job of representing them as people, as individuals, not Mm -hmm. just as a a caste uh, of, of servants who are just constantly around. I think that you know, for Katniss's perspective in particular, we see how the two Avoxes that she's in closest contact with are both people that she has prior relationships with,
0: mm-hmm. with Darius
1: and the Red-Headed Girl. And that for her, having them around her is not having a individuality-less being it is having a person there and one that that causes her emotional responses and things like that so much so that the capital then uses that against her mm-hmm. in Catching Fire and so yeah I think it's interesting because her response to them is in and of itself so contrary to their social function for the way the, the capital is set up where they are not only people who have rebelled against or, or, you know, committed crimes against the capital, but they are then sentenced essentially to a life of servitude and of enslavement. And in that process, they also lose the ability to communicate verbally. Yeah. And that is a way I think of itself, that, that mutilation and forced disability is a way of trying to deny the personhood of these avoxes or, or try to strip the personhood away from them it's
0: in it's an ableist perspective totally, right exactly. a- mindset but that is pan Am that is our world so yeah
1: exactly and, and and I do want to have this conversation mindful of not being ableist myself and and, and using that kind of language um, but I think that it is something that is very important because it, it's also a way of branding the avoxes you know, showing that they are this cast of person, you can identify them as such very easily through that mutilation. But it wasn't a choice to literally brand them as slave societies have done throughout our history. But that additional level of mutilation, um, and I think, yeah, that that removal of the ability to speak vocally, to communicate vocally, is, I think, intended at least to be dehumanizing. Um mm-hmm.
0: There are multiple levels of utility there, Mm -hmm. right? It's, first of all, turning them into servants, such slaves. Also, they are used as a deterrent Mm -hmm. in society. Don't be a dissident. Don't plot against us. Don't anything. We don't know exactly what people have done to have the capital respond in that way, but... It is meant to deter people from doing that in the future. And then thirdly, by taking away their ability to speak verbally, the capital is making it more difficult for them to be engaged in different methods of of resistance. I mean, obviously they could create their whole own network (laughs) among themselves, but... Who knows? Maybe, maybe they're punished if they use sign, you know, I, I, I don't know. But um, it's definitely an attempt to help uh, still some of the movement there.
1: Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's so symbolic in that way as well of, oh, you are going to try to speak out against us? Well, then we are going to remove the ability for you to speak. So yeah, I, I think that that's, that's really interesting. And I think that then having Pollux as a character in Jay becomes very powerful as well because he is someone who has had all of these kinds of things happen. They've tried to strip his personhood, his, his ability to resist. They've not only mutilated him, but they've continued to traumatize him through the work they've forced him to do mm-hmm. uh, in his enslavement. You know, all, all these other elements. But he remains someone who resists, who uses his skill base to do what he can to support a resistance movement uh, and ultimately a revolutionary or or military movement against the capital and then he's during their infiltration of the capital able to use some of the knowledge that he gained as an avox um, to help guide them to the sewers in some ways and so yeah i think that there's there's a really great and just interesting way of representing that and in particular having him and his relationship with castor and their ability to sign with one another and his ability to communicate with Katniss even when he's not signing to her, um, I think are are really, really important moments for this enslaved caste in the capital structure that could have been included just as kind of like a world-building tidbit. Uh, It could have just been like, this is one of the awful things the capital does. Uh and okay, you see a couple examples in The Redheaded Girl or and in Darius, but I think really exploring that more intentionally in Mockingjay is a a really strong choice in, in how to utilize these kinds of metaphors in fiction in ways that are responsible and and nuanced.
0: Mhm. Mhm. I think it was interesting to them adding in the plinths had a boxes. Yeah. in songbirds and snakes and yeah we've mentioned before how how upsetting i'm sure that that was for sejanus but that his mom would cook things specifically for them that they could eat more easily considering the the mutilation that had been done to their tongue um yeah
1: that's one of my favorite moments from the the whole book mm -hmm. i think because it shows such a depth of empathy and compassion
0: but it also shows, oh, we've never thought about this before. Exactly. You know, and yeah. how are meals for A-boxes done in the Capitol?
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a good element of representation in, in the books.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Because kind of as you were mentioning, you know, our society has its own issues with disability and attempting to deny personhood to those who are disabled. Mm-hmm. Um... And, you know, th- those who are activists and, and people who are resisting that and, and trying to build a society that is less oppressive to people with disabilities, I think, uh, are, ha- have highlighted a lot of those kinds of readings, which have certainly made my readings of this series more compelling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But why don't we head into our compelling questions?
0: Yeah, so my question for you is where do you see Suzanne Collins embedding personhood in her books through her writing versus where do you see characters tapping into personhood through their
1: actions? Interesting. What do you mean by characters tapping into personhood?
0: So like something that I was thinking about is Cinna making the Burning Embers outfit it wasn't like, we're coal miners. It wasn't the same way of dehumanization Mm. and commodification that stylists usually would do. And, you know, I think that there's a symbolic element there. Embers have a life cycle. They, you know, flames dance in a sort of uncontrolled way, right? And so to me, that's kind of like tapping into these tributes are not just tools of industry. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we just talked about it, but I think Ma Plint's choice to bake things specifically that the Avoxes can eat more easily is, I think, its own complicated example because while she's doing that in a way that is trying to be considerate of the way they operate in the world, it is still her baking things for her slaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an element of, of personhood there, but it's within a structure that is dehumanizing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that so much of what the capital does is in that same
0: way—giving something here while also stripping away all of everything else there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking about Lucy Gray, how she kind of asserts her own personhood by singing both politically bold songs mm-hmm. and also personal songs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I mean, she was the first person to do that, right? To refuse to just be a tribute, but to show who she was, or at least a big part of who she was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, another complicated place I see is in the first book in particular, how Katniss thinks of the other tributes. Some she'll just know their names, but then there's things like the Foxface Girl. Where it's it's something that is a characteristic of her that maybe gives her some personality, but is still not referring to them by name. And there's many who are just the boy from Three. And so, you know, there could have been a version of the book that all 24 Tribute's names were known to Katniss and to the audience and that they were used by Suzanne Collins as she was writing. And that would have its own kind of powerful version of, look, these characters are dying. These are, these are individual children who are being killed and killing each other. And they didn't do that. And I think that that is a more realistic representation yeah. because Katniss is herself not that interested in making them people. Because yeah, it's worse she, exactly. if you think
0: about them yeah. as people because then they're dying in front of you or you're killing them.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's an, uh, an important element and, and also an element I think that comes into her in Catching Fire where she doesn't want to make alliances with just anyone in particular because yeah, the more she knows someone the harder it's going to be for her to possibly kill that person mm-hmm. uh, or to deal with their deaths. So that, that I think is an interesting element of kind of looking at yeah the narrative choices that collins is making
0: totally yeah i was also thinking about collins embedding it into her writing i think unlike a lot of books i've read there's a lot of side characters and she manages to make so many of them really interesting and you just want to know so much more about she creates that sometimes by just adding one additional layer to a character, and you know, creating one moment where you feel compassion or giving one new thing about them that piques your interest. And, and like you were talking about Foxface, I think she's a good example too, because sure, we don't know her name, and we know she's extremely clever. But, like, if it was just left there and it's like, oh, she made it almost to the end and she's clever, that wouldn't be adding that much personhood, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But her laughing really hard after Katniss blows up all of the career's food, that adds something. That makes her interesting. That gives her more personality. She's not only clever, but she is taking some amount of pleasure and you know, putting herself a little bit at risk because she's out in the open, she's making noise, laughing at the fact that somehow this happened yeah. and the careers don't have their stockpile of food. And so I think just little details like that is all you need to make a side character have more personhood. And the last one I was kind of thinking about is Lamina from Songbirds birds and snakes she's one of the tributes from district seven the one that like goes up on that apparatus mm. that they hung marcus on and she's just hanging out on there for as, as long as she can sure it's like oh that was innovative but then her crawling over to him having some conversation with him he says something to her she nods and then she kills him which Our assumption, as the reader, is that he asked her to because he's being tortured. Just that one action and that interaction that we don't even hear what's happening, you know, adds this level of person for her. So then when she dies, it's like, oh, but, uh, you know. Totally. So I I think Suzanne Collins is particularly good at that.
1: Yeah. Another one that came to my mind was, uh, you know, oftentimes when I think about dehumanization and objectification, I think about sexual objectification Mm -hmm. and how women's bodies in particular are objectified. And though we know the Capitol does that all the time with the tributes, I think the one scene that comes to mind of that kind of happening to one of the main characters is Johanna Mason taking her clothes off in the Mm -hmm. elevator. But she's doing that herself Herself. (laughs) as a way of bothering katniss and you know maybe flirting with Peta a little bit or flirting with katniss who knows (laughs) um but i think that that is an example of taking something that typically would be used with the male gaze you know that objectification element but instead having it be absolutely within her own power and her own choices to engage with her body in that way
0: yeah she's doing it to make other people feel uncomfortable
1: But throughout, she is in control of her body. Mm -hmm. To the Really, to the extent that it makes other people uncomfortable. Yeah. Rather than her body is being objectified and utilized by others.
0: That they feel comfortable with, but she feels uncomfortable with.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't we move into your question for me?
1: I was wondering, do you think that capital viewers ever see tributes as people?
0: This is a good question. My guess would be... The closest they would ever get to that would be in some random happenstance of that tribute looks like my cousin or something like that, where it relates to something in their, their life mm. that they relate to. Or, you know, a capital. Well, I don't know. Would somebody in the capital be like the boy with the limp? Mm. or would they have? quote unquote, fix them, you know, I I don't know if, if somebody would be in the Capitol and not have had surgery or whatever prosthetics. And so I don't know, but if there were people in the Capitol that could relate to that, you know, but it would all be based off of themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) something that relates to their life, rather than seeing that person as a person first. Other than that, maybe the closest would be, in the 75th hunk games when they have had years or for some decades of not getting to know but at least seeing people much more frequently the victors but it's hard because it's like oh well obviously fennec interacted with a lot of people physically intimately i wouldn't say intimately yeah. but like that was an objectification so they weren't seeing him as a person you know yeah I'd, i don't know i mean obviously anybody who was a part of the resistance right does of course. but yeah i think the fact that it's through a screen and it's produced and there are mutts you know it, there's this setting this stage arena that has been created to to do certain things that distances people. It's it's not people just in a stadium watching it happen right there in front of them. And when we think about reality TV...
1: Even when there's investment, there's suspension of disbelief.
0: Yeah, I mean, you see the people as people, yeah. right? But, like, you wouldn't say that you know the people, you know? Yeah. So it, th- there there's a distance there, too. So yeah, all of these things, these generations have put these things in place and then with technology and whatnot to make them not feel entirely like people. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting dynamic that's at play because you're right. They are, through the Hunger Games, dehumanized to the extent where, yeah, every year 23 children are killed and it's to cheering audiences and and all these Mm -hmm. elements. And that in and of itself brings a dehumanization with it uh, that just is crucial to the entire endeavor but between the 10th and the 75th games you know the realization and that it is more engaging when these people are characters at least Mm -hmm. uh, that they have their own personalities or skills or motivations or or what have you that are put on display and oftentimes created or, or developed in order to be put on display it's this weird kind of path between getting close to humanizing them, for but the purpose of exactly <laughs> of maintaining their dehumanization.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because anything else then it would be traumatizing Mm -hmm. right like you have to have some amount of distance and some amount of dehumanization going on because like we can watch things we can be very attached to characters we can read these books and be so sad when different characters die even though we knew that they were going to right but we know that they are characters somewhere in our minds even if we are crying over them dying that it's not traumatizing in the same way it would be if this was an actual person yeah. that you knew or a person that you were seeing in front of you, even if it was a stranger, having these things happen to them.
1: Exactly. The, the, the production of it kind of gives it that element.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's a little close. I mean, throughout history, people have also done these sorts of things. Totally. And some places around the world still have public executions and things like that. But the capital people are so distanced from that in their own lives but also are surrounded by it all the time happening to a different category of people yeah
1: yeah and it's such a important cultural element of their lives where so much of the way that society operates and the things that are important to what's in the headlines and all those other kinds of things are surrounding the games
0: mm-hmm. And are they losing some of their personhood by centering their lives so much Mm. around the stripping away of other people's personhood?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like we're doing by talking about it. Talking (laughs) on a podcast every week. We're losing out on hours of our lives.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, why don't we go into our missed opportunities?
0: Yeah, so I was thinking about how I just wish that we got to see more of how victors are portrayed post their games. You know, how is their humanity and their complexities diluted or covered or suppressed or ignored by the capital or by the cinematographers and the editors and and stuff in the capital. Yeah. I wonder, do they project the same caricature that they did from the victor's first games you know mm. or does the capital add on to their caricatures in an attempt to keep them quote-unquote interesting you know uh, do they have to do interviews or or shows of their supposed talents periodically you know finding out more about phoenix character gives us a, a small window into how M portrays as after their games. And clearly his caricature of being just this beautiful, coveted, you know, lusted after person has, has continued on.
1: But could it for another 40 years? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think of if Katniss had just had the typical Victor's experiences, mm-hmm. how long would she be the girl on fire for? Yeah. Because eventually the... Teenage romance between her and Peta wouldn't be as important. I know that they they mention how sometimes the kids will then go into the games, and so I guess that's a way for
0: special, you know, games.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think that it sounds like there probably are ways that they continue to utilize them as uh, these entertainment commodities.
0: Mm -hmm. And as kids, being some of them being so young. I mean, I, I highly doubt many 12-year-olds win. Right. But Finnick, I think, was 14, mm-hmm. and he won, partially because he was so beautiful, and sponsors just kept throwing things at him.
1: And but... then gave him a trident that he could throw at other people.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that follow-through. You're welcome. <laughs> but, yeah, it begs the question I know we've mentioned before, like, how much of some of how he presents himself or some of his personality traits of you know being able to be flirty or you know whatever it is say provocative things like how much is him before or would have been him regardless and how much is developed into him as as he grows and and has to be part of this for so long yeah what about you what's your missed opportunity
1: i was thinking about how we don't see many stereotypes of the districts, we really see them ourselves through the industry that they're known for, um, Mm -hmm. without any kind of cultural stereotypes that I think would would exist. And that got me to thinking about how, well, district people at least don't travel a lot. And so it made me think a little bit about how, I wonder how district peacekeepers engage with that, because they're the ones who probably do experience the most travel in, in Panem, where they you know, are sent to other districts uh, to to keep. And I wonder if within those peacekeepers' communities, first off, how is it different for them compared to a capital peacekeeper in how they see the, the personhood of the people who they're overseeing? But also, yeah, if you go to district four and it's your first day on the job as a peacekeeper are the other peacekeepers telling you about how oh the district four people are like this or like that and and kind of spreading those kinds of stereotypes and then if you get sent somewhere else or you go back to your own district you know do those spread that way but yeah i just I, Mm. i think that it's hard in a society in which the districts are so isolated and siloed but I think the peacekeepers would be an interesting way of engaging with how those kinds of stereotypes spread because they are so movable in what they do as an occupation. Mm, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And that makes me think of. I mean, it, it's definitely different, but that kind of makes me think of wondering how much individual districts would have their own dialects, their own. Mm. Accents, you know, they talk about the capital accent certainly, um, and I imagine the capital in whatever school education that they do in the districts would, you know, have some sort of standardized language or whatever. But that doesn't mean that the communities themselves wouldn't develop their own slangs and dialects and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, which, you know, kind of I don't know if a community can have a personhood, but uh, that is what happens in with people around the world. When you're in a community, especially a community that's able to be a little more siloed or isolated, whether purposefully or or not by their choice, those things that they do pop up. So
1: yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I was thinking of, you know, stereotypes as a way of stripping personhood uh, from totally, a community. Totally, yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's also very little element that we see of districts beyond District 12 having actual personality and uniqueness, which is such a crucial element of the way that neighborhoods and communities mm-hmm. build themselves.
0: Yeah, we, we know that they have some specific dances. Mm-hmm. They, we know that they have a, a marriage tradition. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, we're not we're not sure otherwise.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Why don't we move into our
1: takeaways? Sure. What do you have?
0: I think mine is that, you know, when we were talking about Gail uh, at the beginning of the episode, it kind of makes me think, in, in contrast to Katniss, how he, in his passion and his fight for justice, does end up dehumanizing. I think she rarely does. She tries to sometimes, like we were talking about. She doesn't want to know the people's names. She doesn't want to Mm -hmm. form allies that are just going to die. But that's because she recognizes their personhood from the beginning. That if it's a person in front of her that she knows, it's going to be so much more difficult. And even the people that she kills, and she does kill, Mm -hmm. they haunt her. We never really see her killing and not thinking about it, being callous to it. Yeah. I think that she always somehow keeps that personhood, like the, the tension there, even if she is then going to kill Coin. you know, even if she's going to make these calculated decisions to do it.
1: Or un- even if she is shooting into the crowd in the Capitol when she's trying to survive at the end of Mockingjay, mm-hmm. she's still commenting on the fact that this is what she's doing and it has a cost. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's not just calloused, like you said.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's, it's that tension in her. It would be easier for her if she didn't do that. If she didn't try to hold the humanity and the goal in both hands you know and it it's more destructive to her psychologically emotionally because she recognizes that all of these people
1: are people but it's less destructive for society
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. that's really profound
0: oh thanks what about you do you have anything profound for me
1: no uh very very rarely i think my takeaway is is actually kind of Something that you mentioned earlier, and and I think it came to me around the same time it came to you during our discussion, but it was that the capital looks at these tributes as characters in a story. Hmm. And we're literally talking about characters in a story. (laughs) I know, right? I guess that that just makes me empathize with the average capital citizen in a way that I, I hadn't really done uh very much up till now and are
0: we caesar fuckermans <laughs> but less charismatic
1: <laughs> exactly we're yeah. oh, not
0: stanley <laughs> no, tucci no we are not
1: stanley tucci <laughs> stanley tucci if you're listening we'd love to have you as a guest on the <laughs> podcast <laughs> yes but yeah i think that that kind of empathy in and of itself is is another way that this series as as metaphor really really works mm-hmm. um and and has a lot of depth
0: absolutely i mean I always love a series that makes you practice some of the things that the series is about, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, because it's it's too easy and it's too often that they don't. Absolutely. It's about fighting evil and we're killing all these people <laughs> and don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is that about fighting evil? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I believe we have a listener shout out to do, correct?
0: Yes. Well, not just listener, although she has been a listener of ours for quite a while. We have a new patron. Her name is Tracy. So thank you so much for coming on board. And we have a geeky fact of hers to share. So she once won $500 in a massage therapy blogging contest while everyone went with technical information, she dove into physiology, flatulence, and massage. <laughs> and so she made it funny, but factual, and got five hundred dollars for talking about toots.
1: That's amazing. I
0: know, right? Uh
1: I need to read this blog post. <laughs> I know. I'll see if
0: I can acquire it from
1: there you go. her. <laughs> uh that's great. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. Uh, and thank you again for being a supporter for us on Patreon and for, for being such a, a long-time listener and a fan of the show. If you, listener, would like to also get a geeky fact shared or you want to just support our show, you can go to patreon.com slash lines to become a supporter of the podcast, just like Tracy.
0: And something she is also excited about and we are excited about is... In the new year, in 2022, in January, we are going to be taking a break from what we have been doing with the podcast, and like we did for The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, we are going to do a read-along read-through of The Hunger Games trilogy, since we already did Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and we really loved it. We enjoyed that process so much. We decided that it was time. We'll be doing a similar thing, but the format's going to be slightly different since we're not reading them for the first time, obviously. <laughs> and we'll we'll again be doing a few chapters at once per episode, uh, so it's it's not one chapter at a time because that's impossible with the yeah, Hunger Games. it's <laughs>
1: quite too quite a long time.
0: <laughs> it's not even that; it's like we can, you can't wait, you know. I mean,
1: that's also true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every single
0: chapter ends on a cliffhanger, and even if you know what happens
1: well, now- with that
0: cliff. It's still hard it to stop.
1: It makes you want to climb up from it, jump off from it. I'm not exactly sure what the next step of the cliffhanger would be. Yeah. But it makes you want or to... bend a
0: <laughs> platform out under your feet.
1: To keep reading in... Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To escape the metaphor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you know what comes next and how that's also very good. Yeah. So, yeah, we're we're really excited about this this new direction for the podcast to go and to to move into yeah, reading through these books that we clearly love so so much. Mm-hmm.
0: And so on Patreon, we're going to be catering our our tiers for patrons to be more engaging with the books as as we go through them once January
1: comes. Yeah. Well, we're not quite to that new format yet so what we'll be discussing next week on the podcast
0: so next week we are going to be looking at avatar the last airbender and the legend of korra and we are going to be looking at those series through the theme of race
1: okay race and avatar that'll be great
0: that time
1: well thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of geek between the lines you can find links to our website and our social media in the episode description. And as I mentioned before, you can join us at patreoncom slash keep between the lines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at Lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek wow. out!